0: Lord God, you are an amazing uh, God, and Father, this is a difficult passage for us to look at, but we pray tonight that we would uh, see more of your amazing Father heart, and Lord, that we would love you and worship you more fully, we pray, in Jesus' name, Amen. Please do sit down. So in 2 Kings, uh, chapter 8, page 377, it would be great if you could keep that open. My wife, uh, Nikki, and I, we've got a bit of a kind of good cop, bad cop thing going on at home. Uh, At the moment, we've got two young daughters, uh, Isabel and Alice, and Isabel's now uh, three and a half, and generally she's very sweet-natured, very well-behaved girl, but she's just starting to get to the age where she's pushing the odd boundary. Occasionally she needs a bit of a firmer hand, no TV, no chocolate buttons, that sort of thing. And it's something I kind of find quite difficult as a father. She she looks at me with her sort of big blue eyes, says, Daddy. And I often sort of crumble uh, in front of her. I don't find it easy to be firm with her. And when I am, I often find it difficult. She can't watch an episode of Postman Pat uh, before bed. She cries, she wails. And I just feel awful. Uh, She probably thinks that she's the only one who's kind of hurting in this process, and there's no TV. But I think, actually... It's probably me that feels worse. I'd much rather give her another chance. My wife, Nikki, she's much stronger. She just gets on with it, tells me not to be so soft. Uh, and And she's right, absolutely right. Isabel can't have endless chances with no consequences if she fails to behave. There's got to be a consequence. There's got to be a punishment. But dispensing it hurts me as much as Isabel. Well, in the passage we're looking at tonight, we read of the beginning of the process that will lead to the most severe punishment of the nation of Israel up to this point. Up to now, Elisha has served primarily as a minister of God's grace. That's what the first uh, seven chapters of Two Kings are about. They're packed with great stories of God stooping down and rescuing people. We've looked at some of them over the past few weeks. But in chapters 8 to 10, uh, the role of Elisha changes. Elisha now appears as the minister of of the judgment of God. The grace of God towards Israel has not been accepted, uh, so the judgment must come. God's patience has run out. And through Elisha, God prepares uh, to severely punish the nation of Israel. And here in chapter 8, Elisha is setting apart Hazael as the Lord's instrument uh, to bring that terrible judgment on Israel. This is the final era of the history of Israel, before God determines that Israel will be sent into exile, that never to return or be restored as a nation again. And yet, standing out from this sobering passage is one verse. Do you see that? Verse 11. The man of God began to weep. The man of God began to weep. The Lord must punish Israel for her rebellion against him. It's what justice requires. Yet make no mistake about it, this punishment will deeply grieve the Father heart of God. I've only got one point uh, tonight, and it's this. The Lord loves those he disciplines. He loves those that he disciplines. To understand the context uh, and the background of this passage, we need to go back to uh, 1 Kings and chapter 9, 19, and the the time of the great prophet Elijah. Because in 1 Kings chapter 19, the Lord reveals himself to Elijah after he's fled from the murderous intent of Jezebel, and God directs Elijah back to his ministry and and instructs him to do three things. First, he's got to go to Damascus and anoint Hazael as king over Aram. Second, he's got to go to Jehu, got to go and anoint Jehu as the new king over Israel. And third, he's to anoint Elisha to succeed him as prophet. Three anointings, Hazael, Jehu, and Elisha. Well, the anointing of Elisha happens, but Elijah did not complete the other two tasks. So when he's taken up to heaven, these two tasks fall to his successor, Elisha. And so in the passage we're looking at tonight, we find Elisha in Damascus, capital of Aram, meeting with Hazael and apparently anointing him as king over Aram. And with the mind of a prophet, Elisha foresees the punishment that Hazael and his followers will inflict on Israel. And foreseeing the terrible punishment that is going to ensue, Elisha weeps. I think if you're like me, some of the words in this passage are not easy to stomach. Verse 12 presents us with a really brutal picture of war. It's difficult for our minds to deal with. I remember very clearly my grandma telling me repeatedly that the God of the Old Testament was harsh and brutal, evil even, very different from the enlightened God of the New Testament. Maybe part of us is inclined to agree. Well, we need to understand the nature of Israel's relationship with God in order to understand the context and the place of Hazael's rule. You know, throughout its history, Israel was a really boastful nation. God had favoured them. They had the temple where God dwelt. They had the special relationship with God. They were God's chosen people, his light to the nations. But as a result, they often drifted into being arrogant, being complacent. They did what they wanted and thought they could get away with it. Big mistake. You know, Israel's behaviour towards the Lord was nothing short of scandalous, outrageous. Again and again, God lavishes his mercy and his love on Israel. It would be reasonable, surely, uh, to expect Israel to show love, devotion in return, loyalty to the Lord in return. But no. Instead, they repeatedly turn away from him, defy his will, bestow their love on things that are not of God, pursue idols in the rightful place of God. The Old Testament uses different pictures uh, to describe the nature of of God's relationship with Israel. One such picture is marriage. It's a picture that runs right through the book of Hosea. If you want to see that, just read through the book sometime. Just listen to these words from chapter 2, verse 19 of Hosea. The Lord says, I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice, in love and compassion I will betray you in faithfulness and you will acknowledge the Lord. Israel and the Lord are to be married. The Lord is the groom. Israel is his bride. In his grace, God chooses Israel to be his bride. And as with every marriage, that means Israel and the Lord are to be loyal, faithful to each other. But what is the response of Israel? The Old Testament describes it as a harlot. She should love the Lord. And the Lord alone. But instead, she's promiscuous. She sleeps around, pursues other loves as the fancy takes her. She kicks the Lord out of the marriage bed and invites in new and seemingly more exciting lovers, like Baal. Israel does exactly as she pleases. So the prophet Hosea condemns the nation of Israel for her prostitution and lack of devotion to the Lord. And God will discipline Israel. He'll divorce her, judge her, and punish her. And yet, and yet in Hosea, there is always the promise that God in his grace and mercy will bring her back to himself. Israel and the law will once again be reconciled as bride and groom. Verse 8 of chapter 11 of Hosea. How can I give up Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? My heart is changed within me. All my compassion is aroused. God will restore Israel once again. That is the history of Israel, loved by God. She turns her back on God. God judges and disciplines her for her rebellion. But then the Lord God rescues her and brings her back. And so the pattern is repeated again and again and again. Second and final picture want to draw on of God's relationship with Israel, is that a father and son? God is the father of the nation. Israel is his son. Exodus chapter 4, verse 22 says this, this is what the Lord says. Israel is my firstborn son. Or Jeremiah 31, verse 9, God says, I will lead them beside streams of water on a level path where they will not stumble because I am Israel's father, And Ephraim is my firstborn son. And as you'd expect a father to do, the Lord blesses Israel. He chooses them as his son. As every father wants to do, he gives them good things. He pours out his fatherly love upon them in wonderful ways. This is his son. Why wouldn't you do that? And how should a son respond? He should show respect, devotion, and love to his father but not Israel. I want to just turn a minute to the book of Isaiah. page 685, just before we come to the passage we're looking at tonight. Isaiah chapter 1, page 685. Let's look at verse 2 of chapter 1. Hear, O heavens, listen, O earth, For the Lord has spoken, I reared up children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. Then verse 4. Our sinful nation, a people loaded with guilt, a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption. They have forsaken the Lord, they've spurned the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on him. Israel turns its back on the laws. As a parent... You are one. Can you imagine the pain of your children turning their back on you? I want nothing to do with you, said the child. And so in verse five, there is a picture of Israel as a bruised and battered body, the result of the repeated judgment and punishment that God has rightfully meted out, as Israel persistently rebels against him. And yet and yet, by the end of the chapter there is already the promise of redemption. Look at verse 27 of chapter 1. Zion will be redeemed with justice, her penitent ones with righteousness. This is the pattern of Israel's relationship with God. And this is the context of the passage we're looking at tonight. If you could turn back to it. It's on page 377. So in the passage, verse 7, we see Elisha go to Damascus, the capital of Iran. The current king of Aram, Ben-Hadad, is ill. Seems to be a serious illness. The king thinks he might not recover from it. And Elisha has a reputation as a prophet with an ability to foresee and foretell the future. He's a guy who could deliver. He's got the reputation. He probably acquired it after God worked through him to cure Naaman, which we looked at a few weeks ago. So, Ben-Hadad sends Israel off, verse 8, to talk to Elisha. He's to go and meet Elisha take a generous gift as a sweetener, and ask Elisha whether the king will recover from his illness. So, off Hazael goes, verse 9, taking with him a gift of 40 camel loads of Damascus wares. Not bad. And Hazael asks Elisha the question, verse 9, will King Ben-Hadad recover from this illness? Elisha's answer in verse 10, it's a little bit confusing. Go and say to him, you will certainly recover, but the Lord has revealed to me that he will in fact die. There's some debate over these verses. It's possible that some of the meanings got lost in translation, but the main point is clear. King Ben-Hadad will die. And then we come to the heart of the passage. Look at verse 11. Elisha stared at him with a fixed gaze until Hazael felt ashamed. I guess we all know that penetrating stare, don't we? We've had it from a teacher, a parent, a spouse, possibly. The one that cuts to our core and knows what is really going on. Continues, Then the man of God began to weep. Why is my Lord weeping? asks Azale. Because I know the harm you will do to the Israelites, he answers. You will set fire to their fortified places, kill their young men with the sword, dash their little children to the ground, and rip open their pregnant women. Is a gruesome and disturbing words. They tell her the terrible atrocities of war that are to come. Terrible suffering will be inflicted. Hazel, well, he's probably licking his lips. It's going to be great for his CV. Brilliant. But he's thinking, how on earth am I going to be able to be in a position to do that? So with self-deprecation, he asks in verse 13, how could your servant, a mere dog, accomplish such a feat? Elisha replies, the Lord has shown me that you will become king of Aram. And so doubtless, buoyed by this news, Hazael returns to King ben lies by telling him that he would certainly recover, and then apparently decides to accelerate the prophecy by suffocating the king. Verse 15. And Hazael then does become uh, the brutal scourge of Israel for the next 50 years or so, just as Elisha foretold. Sometimes we can be inclined, can't we, to think that God must be indifferent to the judgment he dispenses to those who turn away from him in sinful rebellion. Perhaps God even enjoys it. Is God that little bit sadistic? Well, surely as the tears of Elisha flow, we see the very opposite is true. The man of God wept. These tears are so important. Why? Because mingled with the tears of Elisha are the tears of God himself. Elisha is the prophet of God and in his weeping, divine sorrow is revealed. The punishment that is to be inflicted on Israel grieves God terribly. God is grieved and pained when judgment is inflicted on his nation, his bride, his son. Of course it is. The grief that God feels is made clear in so much of the Old Testament. Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 11. Listen to what these verses say. As surely as I live, declares the Sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. Turn. Turn from your evil ways. Why will you die, O house of Israel? Why will you die, O house of Israel? of Israel. The Lord God would far rather that those who turn away from him would repent and put their faith in him. Why will you die, O house of Israel? Why? Why? We see this the same tears from Jesus in Luke chapter nineteen, as Jesus foresees the judgment that is to come on Jerusalem at the hand of the brutal Romans. Verse 41 of Luke chapter 19. As Jesus approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. And he goes on to describe the judgment that will come upon Jerusalem, the judgment that grieves the heart of Jesus. And so he weeps. You know, we misunderstand God if we think that in his wrath and in his judgment he is indifferent or aloof or brutal or an uncaring God. God doesn't rub his hands with glee when he judges. God is a God of compassion and mercy. If you think about it, that is the only logical conclusion to come to. Why else would God continue day after day, to put up with this world? Why is he so patient, so long-suffering as daily people, people like you and me, daily put two fingers up to God and say, no thanks, I'm going to love something else but you today. As daily we take the crown from God's head and place it on our own, why does God stand by as we say, I'm going to do it my way? Why didn't he just wipe us all out? Because he's a merciful and a compassionate God. Just think of the words of 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. God takes no pleasure in the judgment of sin. He would far rather display his love, mercy, and grace. But he can only do so to those who humble themselves and repent. repent. Maybe you still doubt the character of God. You know, if so, look no further than the cross of Jesus Christ. Because the cross is the most astounding demonstration of God's compassion and mercy to sinners. What happens at the cross? God sends his own son, whom he loves, to take the terrible punishment that we deserve, to save us from the judgment that would separate us from the love of God forever. God spares us the judgment, but pours it out on his own son. He spares us, the sinners, but punishes his son who has never sinned. Isn't that astounding? If you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, can I ask you this? Will you turn to Christ in repentance and faith and have eternal life? Why bear, why bear God's rightful judgment and eternal death? Why insist on running headlong into destruction when you can come to Christ in repentance and faith and have eternal life? Our rebellion against God, it's got to be punished. But the good news is that the judgment fell on Jesus Christ on the cross. Will you allow Jesus to deal with your sin at the cross? Or will you insist? Will you keep on charging headlong and take it with you to the grave and to the judgment that will fall on you? Most of us here tonight will probably be Christians and we've trusted in the cross. We're now the bride of Christ, the adopted sons and daughters of God. That's great news. But ponder this. Tonight we've seen the tears of Elisha, the tears of the Lord God, and the tears of Christ. I wonder, where are our tears? Sometimes we question very easily the loving Father heart of God. Perhaps we'd do better to look at our own hearts and question our own love for the lost who faced judgment. Isn't that the right thing to do? Because the love of God is not in doubt. Shall we pray? Lord God, we thank you that you are a just God, a loving God, a faithful God, a God that loves us so much that he sent his own son to die for us. Lord God, we praise you for that tonight. We pray that we would understand your Father heart so deeply, that we would be moved to love you so much more fully. Lord, that we might overflow ourselves with your love, with your tears for people who don't know you. Lord God, that you might be glorified in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.